Welcome to Canned Laser, the action movie showcase, special car edition. I'm Ian, joined here today by my co-host Pete. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? I am good, thanks. So Pete, why are we here today? Well, we're here today to talk about a fallen hero. That's right. It's a hero not of flesh and blood, but of oil and steel. So, so Pete, what springs to mind when you think of a panther? I think of T'Challa, the Black Panther, a Marvel comic book character. But first, the mantle of Black Panther can now be laid to rest. His mission is done. I think of a release of Mac OS X. I think also of an animal, possibly endangered. That animal sounds a lot like a release of Mac OS X. Well, they're both very powerful. Okay. I, first and foremost, think of the Crown Victoria police car. What? Which car brand is the most common police car? Ford. Yes! Yeah! So, why are we dedicating an entire podcast to the Ford Panther platform? We both like cars. True. Sp especially cars that feature prominently in action stories. Also true. We like almost anything that features prominently in an action story. Examples of cars that we, uh, we find in intriguing are Kit from Knight Rider, the V8 Interceptor from Mad Max, as well as the Transporter's high-priced German sedans. The Crown Vic sort of stands alone as far as its longevity, though. It's been seen in movies from the late 70s onward to today. In fact, it has over 4,100 entries in the Internet Car Movie Database, and that's just for the Crown Vic, not its platform mates, the Town Car or the Grand Marquis. Not to mention that the Crown Vic is also the official car of Law & Order, a show that seemed to meet its demise around the same time as the Panther platform when it moved to L.A., when both were summarily canceled. We're taking a moment to peer into a moment in history that has passed us. And Can Laser will do this from time to time, as 2012 is the last mile year of the Panther platform. Production of the Panther platform ended in late 2011, and the manufacturing plant at St. Thomas in Ontario was closed. It was the last body-on-frame full-size American car, which used to roam the world, and <laughs> certainly this country with total authority. And that makes us a little bit sad. Yeah, I was a proud owner of the competitor's entry into the field of full-size body-on-frame cars with my first car, which was a 1986 Chevy Caprice Brome. So I'm especially sad to see this die. Let's elaborate a little bit on exactly what the Ford Panther platform was. To describe the Panther platform, we need to understand how it came to be and how cars were sized and seen in the 1960s. First and foremost, bigger is better. Mm -hmm. Size equaled status, and that's in terms of terms of the car size, engine displacement, power ratings. In fact, the Crown Vic in the 80s into the early 90s had a 5-liter V8 that produced 150 horsepower of tire vaporizing fury. <sighs> Boss. Yeah. Fuel efficiency and environmental impacts were minor considerations in the 60s, uh, especially relative to their importance today. That is, there were none. Cars also changed in the early 70s as new realities began to set in. You have a with the onset of the Jimmy Carter administration, which Ian is a aficionado of. Oh, absolutely. But even before Carter took over the country and destroyed it, there was the 1973 <laughs> OPEC oil crisis. 
1973 OPEC oil crisis was caused by the oil cartels diverting petroleum supplies from the U.S. as part of a political embargo. The United States had agreed to resupply the Israeli forces during the Yom Kippur War, and that lasted from October 73 until March 74. OPEC began the embargo to demonstrate the opposition that many Middle Eastern countries had toward the U.S. involvement in support of Israel. Oil prices rose from $3 per barrel to $12 per barrel. Gasoline prices spiked, as you might imagine, and supply ran behind demand. Gas rationing began, as you can learn from anyone who's in their 45 to Mm. 120 years old at this point. And many service stations went without any fuel for weeks at a time. That was at the height of the embargo. So let's talk about the changes that the hero Jimmy Carter ushered in with this new era as weight and fuel efficiency began to matter during the 1970s, especially considering that full-size cars of the late 60s and early 70s were frequently equipped with large V8 engines, often tuned with two, four, or even six barrel carburetors for power. To put this time period and mindset in context, take the 1970 Plymouth Hemicuda as an example. It featured a 426 cubic inch, or 7 liter to you Europeans, wow. V8 engine with two four-barrel carburetors. Uh, to give a modern example, a Nissan Altima V6, the, the powerful one, the big one, the expensive one, has a 3.5 liter V6, or half of the size of this <laughs> Hemicuda's motor. <laughs> Running on heavily leaded gasoline, the good stuff, the 426 Hemi would produce a rated 425 horsepower and 490 foot-pounds of torque. If you're interested in knowing what torque is, I recommend asking the internet. This recipe <laughs> resulted in a factory rating of 6 miles per gallon, wow. and those were highly inflated before the EPA existed and started rating such things. There was no warranty, and there was colossal straight-line speed. Clearly, yes. the owner base for... Racing Hemis did not subscribe to the Rachel Carson Silent Spring School of Thought. Thankfully, she was dead by this time and didn't have to witness the rape of the environment that was still undiscovered. In any event, nascent emissions controls, such as air injection and catalytic converters, began to dramatically reduce the power available from an engine. Although power would eventually be restored and improved upon with the advent of computerized fuel injection and emissions management technology, the fate of the American Luxo barge and muscle cars was sealed. The... California Air Resources Board, or CARB, and later the United States Environmental Protection Agency, began to implement standards for fleet average fuel economy, noxious tailpipe emissions, and state-level exhaust testing. CARB, ruiners of exhaust systems everywhere. This had an upside, though, in that it led to cars of the ilk of the Panther platform. It, in my opinion, is the sole upside to Jimmy Carter's time in office. You mean he did something good? Well... He kind of did posthumously award Rachel Carson with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He also appeared at the end of Argo, which made me collapse in a fit of hysterical <laughs> laughter. <laughs> Introduced in 1976 for the 1977 model year, Jimmy Carter was president during the worst period in American automotive history. <laughs> Stagflation, Iran, and disco conspired to ruin the American way of life. And they did. For the car industry, the emissions and fuel economy pressures of the early 70s had not abated, but the technology being used for domestic auto production was still firmly rooted in 1960s thinking and sophistication. Primitive air injection reactors, low compression cylinders, and high-efficiency transmission gearing, all aimed at getting an extra mile per gallon, made the average domestic sedan a disappointing successor to the high points of the 60s. Perhaps most damaging was the continuing weight and size of the legacy car platforms that were still in use for most domestic passenger cars. 
import car makers, notably Volkswagen and Honda. I bought one of those. And I bought a Volkswagen. Who would have thought? Hmm. Two red-blooded Americans like us. Yeah. Well, the imports, those Europeans and Japanese, began to capitalize on the consumer market demand for tolerable, smaller, fuel-efficient cars. In 1970, General Motors alone held 44.6% of U.S. market share, while all imports combined tallied only 6.8%. By 1980, the dawn of the Panther platform, GM still had 41.4% market share, but imports had now established a beachhead of 21.2%. This left Ford and Chrysler stuck between a rock and a hard place. Ford began to drastically downsize its offerings. For instance, the assembly plant used to build the big block 7.5-liter V8 engines was retooled in 1976 to produce 1.6-liter Ford Escort engines. Well, the Panther was a lighter, more modern take on the classic full-size sedan. It retained the body-on-frame rear-drive V8 engine and boxy styling of earlier sedans, but with an increased focus on integration of fuel efficiency and emissions compliance. Now we enter the golden era of the Panther, a rather robust and lengthy one that lasted from 1978 to 1996. Panther was used for a variety of Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury models. You had the two-door, four-door, and station wagon variants. Notable variants include the Crown Victoria, Lincoln Town Car, and Mercury Grand Marquis. In fact, the presidential limo used by George H.W. Bush was a modified Panther. A crosstown rival, the Chevy Caprice, yes. was downsized for the 1977 model year. When it transformed from its 1976 to 1977 model, the Caprice lost over 600 pounds of weight. An unnoticeable 600 pounds. It also garnered a Motor Trend Car of the Year <laughs> award in the process. Unbelievable. Many aspects of the Caprice and Panther cars were eerily similar. This was the same as today's competition between a Honda Accord and a Toyota Camry. For instance, the Crown Victoria was available with a 5-liter V8, and so was the Caprice. As Pete will now describe in detail, the Chevy 5-liter was no match for the Crown Vic's Mustang GT power plant. So let me give a brief anecdote in my time with the 1986 Chevy Caprice Bone. There are instances in one's life where seemingly meaningless objects can become symbols. Through pain and joy, but mostly pain, we are forged into individuals by our relationship with these objects or ideas. I was forged by two things. The Terminator and my 1986 Caprice Brome. A hyper-alloy combat chassis combined with a 305 cubic inch 5 liter V8, if you will. For $500, I could have a Camaro or Corvette engine in a luxury vehicle. Once I got it working again, obviously. The car was actually free in 1999. $500 is what I paid to fix it. On the inaugural running of the Caprice, I received my first speeding ticket. Still had a paper license, mind you. The real one was still in the mail. It was for a 40 and a 30. It was the first of many lessons I would learn. The lesson here, you can get a speeding ticket without touching the accelerator because a 4,000-pound car will coast to 40 mile per hour downhill if you are not riding your brakes. Next lesson. Not only was this, this a car utilized by the police, who in the case of my hometown of Port Chester, New York, refused to ride in a Rustang, we rock Chevys, but that drug dealers also used these as well. So I was subject to many stops and searches. Proof to me that profiling is real. 
Being a straight edge kid means little when you rock long hair, a bandana, and a caprice. I'm not sure what GM used for the material of those luxury foam seats, but after year 15, they seem to generate a smell that three out of five police officers believe to be that of marijuana. Thirdly, and most important, having a V8 does not mean you have the power to cross the dotted line going up a hill in effort to pass another car. I almost killed my best friend in this manner. Luckily, the approaching car drove off the road. Ironically, the Caprice was really good at controlled hydroplaning, and as long as the flabbergasted drivers around you forgot to press their accelerators out of the shock they were in, you could rejoin the road, even from an ice flow. My next car, a Honda Civic Si, utilized only four cylinders, was almost 2,000 pounds lighter, and had more horsepower. It was also a car preferred by low-level drug dealers, as I found out one day when I was surrounded by four police cars in front of a church for not showing the front license plate on my car. I had taken it off to wax it, the front bumper, of course. Luckily, the lone drug dealer who shared my same paint color installed a Type R engine, which he then proceeded to blow up while wrecking his car. Yeah, the Caprice is pretty legendary, and the amount of stories surrounding that car can make a series of movies. As a testament to how much the car wanted to roll, it died at 70 miles an hour while trying to move forward. Luckily, through the momentum generated by the weight of the car, I was able to drive a mile to an off-ramp and up it to the town Vanessa Williams is from. Well, at least that's what the police officer told me anyway. Now we come to the era where the Panther stands alone, from 1997 to 2012. In 1996, General Motors discontinued the B-body platform and consequently ended the production run of the Caprice, Buick Roadmaster, and Cadillac Fleetwood. The Panther was left as the sole full-size body-on-frame rear-drive sedan for sale in America. In a sense, the Crown Vic, Grand Marquis, and Town Car were the last traditional American cars. Very true. Fleet services latched onto the Panther cars early and never let go. The durability of the Panther's basic layout made it an ideal vehicle for rough treatment. Consequently, taxi companies, livery services, police departments, and rental car companies purchased many Panthers, eventually becoming the predominant consumers of the car during the 2000s. The Crown Victoria, currently the ubiquitous New York City taxi cab and police interceptor, was relegated to police and taxi fleet sales only after model year 2007. As the retail market abandoned the Panther cars for newer, smaller, and more fuel-efficient front-drive alternatives, Ford decided to kill off the platform. By its end in 2011, the Panther platform was the longest-ever-running production car of any chassis in North America, with 32 years of continual production. Well, let's list some notable action movie roles that the Panthers have played in. I guess we should probably start with the Crown Victoria, being that that's the uh, cream of the crop. One of my favorite movies of all time, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. It's Nick Cage classic. That's yep. his car. He rode it around. He was a bad lieutenant, and as a policeman, no matter how corrupt, he had access to a Crown Vic. It was actually an unmarked car, as I recall. Yes. And he went around killing drug dealers and then breakdancing with them. It was fantastic. <laughs> um, I guess we also have the Sabotage music video. Uh, by the Beastie Boys, of course. That was the uh, infamous car that they ran around in while performing all kinds of hijinks. Next, we have Crank 2 High Voltage. Uh, Jason Statham playing Chev Chelios is in possession of this car, along with probably two dozen others during the course of the movie. Yeah, but it's important that he drives the, um, the Crown Vic because basically if it appears in Crank 2 High Voltage, 
that pretty much makes it awesome. Yes, yeah, so I think that's the logic behind things like oxygen and water being good as well. Exactly. So then we have a variant, the uh, Crown Victoria Country Squire Wagon, which I kind of didn't even know existed. It was a rare beast, although they probably made half a million of them. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> In Terminator 2, our heroes, the Terminator, Sarah Connor, and John Connor, escaped from the Pescadero Mental Institution in a country squire, travel to Mexico, and then drive to the home of Miles Dyson, all in a country squire. And it survived an attack by a T-1000, so that's that makes it pretty awesome. Quite impressive. So then the Lincoln Town car, which I guess is the more luxury end, is kind of the official car of Steven Seagal. It's pretty amazing, actually. Although Seagal typically plays a down-on-his-luck, hated police officer who's only path to success <laughs> is brutal and excessive violence, <laughs> often accompanied by cursing and bizarre hand flashes as part of his theoretical martial arts skills. <laughs> he, in Above the Law, it was his hero car. That's a must watch. And also we have a legendary Canadian movie, which I thought was called Road Rage. It's actually called A Friday Night Date. Both good and poignant names for this movie. Casper Van Dien on the run from a man with road rage on Friday night, presumably on a date in Canada. Self-explanatory and awesome. Oh, then we have the Lincoln Town Car Limo. Yeah, in Desperado, the villain Bucho. Bucho. Yep, he had a he had a stretch Lincoln Town Car, which showed that he was highly successful. And important. Yep. I wish Selma Hayek would ride in my limo that I don't own. We can always dream. And I do. This brings us to the idea that the Panther platform is in many ways, especially in terms of action movies, almost immortal. The cars are going to remain fixtures in movies and TV for years to come. No apparent successor on the horizon to this car, at least in terms of prevalence and longevity. I guess you could say the spiritual heir to the Ford Panther lies in the Ford Falcon line, which has been going strong in Australia and New Zealand since 1960. They've sold over 3 million cars. Uh, some of you might notice the Mad Max Interceptors. That's probably the most noticeable example. It really shows what can happen when you shrink a full-size car and adapt it to a specific environment. And if it's good enough for Mad Max, that's good enough for America. I just wanted to mention Mad Max because Fury Road is coming out in 2013, hopefully. Roll the dice on that one. Lincoln has replaced the town car with the MKT, which has three entries in the <laughs> Internet Movie Car Database. The entire Mercury division is dead, and the Ford Police Interceptor, which is essentially a reinforced twin-turbo Taurus, has only one entry. That one entry for the Police Interceptor was on Top Gear America, <laughs> which in itself is a lame copy of a great show, which was showcasing a lame successor to a great action star. Mm, seems fitting. It's a piece of America that's leaving us, but will forever be preserved on film and its digital equivalent. My hope is that when Clint Eastwood is done talking to a chair and he turns that bench seat with a kick and sound system and makes it into a movie that's comparably hard to Gran Torino, except it's called Caprice Brome. And now Cam Blazer would like to do a dedication to a fallen hero. Ford Panther platform, you will not be forgotten. <laughs> Oh, my God. 
always remember that the panther is with us, and I have a sneaking suspicion that it will return one day. T'Challa, the world has many dangers. For your people's sake and the entire world's, a man with your powers can never rest. So what do you say? Then, let the monument of the panther stand tall. The Black Panther's ready to stalk again. <laughs> now you're talking, Shakat. Man, what a sight. And I bet the pigeons are gonna do a little stalking of their own on this baby. <laughs> Are you and who are you working for? I'm Alyssa Braun. Who do you think I am? I'm hot, I'm tired, I'm hungry, and I'm thirsty, and I've been walking around in these high heels all day, and I have blisters on my feet. And quit asking me such stupid questions, all right? And let me tell you something else, Buster. You're not my idea of a dream date, asshole. That's Mr. Asshole you. <laughs> Like the back feet of a song And the 